Find our seats. We'll get going here today. So glad you guys are all here with us today. I want to say welcome. If you're new here, I'm Zach, one of the pastors, and it's a joy to stand up here and have the privilege to open God's Word uh, for you guys. I can't believe you all pay me to do this. It's a joy, and so I'm thankful that I have this job. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful we can do this together. Um, before we dive in uh, to our text for today in 1 Peter chapter 3, a couple announcements. Number one, man, we are making crazy good progress on this new building. Yeah. Yes, give it up. Um, and so we did a lot of painting yesterday. Uh, we need some more folks to maybe sign up for painting tomorrow night. Um, and that's also going to be happening next weekend. So just be dialed into Slack. Slack is our online communication. You know, we're kind of in the home stretch here. So let's finish strong. You know, we could, honestly, we, we could be in there in about five weeks. Um, that's pretty nuts. You know what I mean? This has gone fast. Yeah. And so, like, anytime you're running a race, you want to finish strong. And so uh, let's, let's keep after it. Next week, we're going to have another important announcement about kind of next steps with the building. But more than anything, I just want us to remember what, what the building is. The building is simply a means to facilitate what God has already called us to do, what we have been doing, what we are doing, and God willing, by the power of his word and his spirit, that we'll continue to do. And so a location doesn't change that, right? A lot of times we can either get really excited or like, ooh, new building, and get overexcited. We don't want to do that. We don't want to depreciate its value and, and, and devalue it and say that it's not a big deal because it is. Location is a big deal. Um, property has its function, but more than anything, let's just be thankful, you know? Just an attitude of thankfulness, I think, is the right attitude that will kind of keep us aligned and remembering the building is the building. We're thankful for it. It's great. Man, it's like a huge step up. If you would have told me, you know, seven years ago that we'd be in a building like this after seven years, I would have thought you were crazy. And so, man, we're just thankful. Um, and God willing, our, 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 our purpose and our mission doesn't change one iota. We're still called to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration and doing that as a family. That, God willing, will never change. And so let's just keep that in mind as we move into this and finish strong with some of these painting and doing floors and moving stuff over there and all that. Secondly, um, we have a trip to Ecuador, church-wide trip, coming up first week in July. And a lot of you who are dialed into our weekly email, dialed into Slack, um, know that that's coming. And oftentimes what's the case is everyone just kind of waits till the last minute to sign up, right? And they waver and waver, and you hear announcement after announcement, and you turn to your wife or whatever, your husband, and go, oh, should I go? Uh, I guess I only have one more day to decide. Yeah, I'll go, you know? And you can do that. It just puts a lot of strain on our leaders. It'd be great to know sooner than later um, if, if you can go. And we've got 11 slots left. We'd love to take about... 15 people. Um, and I think it's really important to remember this. These trips serve you in a lot of ways in terms of growing in your love for God. Number one, it just helps you get outside yourself. So you get to, you get to model selflessness because your only job there is to serve. So if you have a heart to serve, go. If you have a heart to be humble, uh, go. Um, if that's a struggle for you, don't go, okay? <laughs> but but We'd love to have you go if you're willing to serve in, in, how, in light of how God has served us. And, and if you want to grow in your heart for the Lord, if you want to grow in your knowledge of who God is and how, what makes him tick, there's nothing better than an international trip. Getting out of your context, 
Because why? Because God is a cross-cultural God. And so you want to know his heart? You've got to care about the things that he cares about. He cares about the whole world, not just the United States. And so that's why we challenge you. I'd love every person in this trip, before you move away or whatever, uh, you know, and, and before the end of your life, go outside the borders of the United States for the purpose of seeing what God is doing among the nations. And for us, that's all about church planting. And that's what we're doing in Ecuador. We're just coming alongside a work of church planting to see churches planted in Ecuador that are doing amazing things through declaration and demonstration, just like us. And so dial into Slack. Get signed up if you're thinking about it. If you have questions, which a lot of you do, talk to James. James, raise your hand there, bud. James is right here. He's our team lead for the trip this year. You can talk to me. I've been there twice. You can talk to James Davenport. He led a trip uh, last year uh, or two years ago. Okay? So um, take that to heart, please. All right, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be starting in verse 13. Starting in verse 13. And, and, and as we do that, let's pray together, okay? Lord, you say that um, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And may it truly be that this morning as we open up your word. Um, Oftentimes we, we are shrouded in, in darkness because of our sin, but you've given us a word from you to help us, to help us find joy in life, to know what life's all about, to know how to navigate what it means to be someone who follows you. And so may that truly happen this morning by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at verse 13 of chapter 3. But... Before we dive in there, again, we always have to read our Bibles in context, right? So look back at verse 9 and remember what we talked about last week. If you weren't here, you can get the MP3 on the website. encourage you to check it out because all this stuff just builds from one week to the next, okay? And so what is verse 9 all about? What does he say? Look at it here. It's not on the, it's not on the screen, so just look at it in your Bible. Uh, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So, Peter just got done talking about seeking revenge, right? There may be people out there, as he's talking to a church that's in a foreign context, under the rule and reign of the Roman Empire, small churches in, in, in uh, what's modern-day Turkey, uh, 2,000 years ago, and they're feeling oppression, they're, they don't fit in, they, the culture thinks they're weird, and he's saying, some of them are, are, are harming you, and I know that. Through various ways, but here's the deal: don't seek revenge. Don't seek revenge. Okay? There's some 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 out there seeking to harm you, and you're going to be tempted in these ways. Don't do it. Here's why: because God is near to those who do things His way, and that's the definition of blessing: the nearness of God to you. I want you to pursue that. So look at what He's saying. Look down at verse 12 again. His whole argument is predicated on this. If you do things the world's way, you're not going to get verse 12. You do things my way, you get verse 12. This is the essence of blessing. What is it? The nearness of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. So it's just a metaphor for saying God is near to you. That's blessing. Do it this way. Don't do it the world's way. The world's way is revenge. Don't go that route, okay? So now, with these themes in mind of revenge and those who might harm you, he asks a rhetorical question in verse 13, and that's where we're going to start today. A rhetorical question. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Verse 13. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you will be blessed. Here's the point. If you're suffering for God, this shows you love God, and loving God is the essence of blessing. Let me say that again. If you're suffering for God, this demonstrates, this shows that you love God, and loving God is the essence of blessing. Now look at the text here. Look at 13. He says right off the bat, no one's going to harm you, right? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But then he goes right on the heels of that is verse 14, and it says seemingly the opposite. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. So what's the deal here? Which is it? Are, am I going to be harmed or am I not? Am, am I going to suffer or am I not? Like, is Peter kind of schizophrenic here and just not really knowing what he's talking about? I think it helps to maybe understand the broader context of the Bible. Um, and I think what Peter's getting at here is he has an internal perspective in mind. He has an eternal perspective in mind. Now, he just got done, like I said, talking about believers in relationship to God. Look at, look at it again in verse 12. Eyes of the Lord on the righteous, ears open to their prayer. God is near you. Who's going to harm you? God is your clo- if God is your closest friend, any harm to be threatened by anybody else would just be silly at best, right? If God is in your vision, if he's the macro, the micro of suffering might not be that big of a deal. See, the rhetorical question of verse 13 is very similar to a verse I memorized, ninth grade year, high school, getting confirmed in the Lutheran church. And I had to stand up in front of the one mega church in Cedar Falls, Iowa in the 80s. Uh, no, wait, it was 91, 90s. And, uh, and I had to recite a, a confirmation verse. This was the tradition in how I was raised. And I picked a verse that was short because a lot of people, and I didn't want to screw it up. And I picked Romans 8:31, But it was close to my heart. Very similar verse as to what we're looking at here. And it says this, if God is for us, great rhetorical question. The Bible is full of rhetorical questions. Pay attention to them. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. Who can be against us? And Peter's saying the same thing here. Who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Meaning, in the light of of who God is and the fact that he's, verse 12, kind of near you, his face is towards you, he's hearing you, you have God, you have a relationship with God. He's your all-consuming passion. He's in your vision. He's what consumes you. Then if that's the case, if someone harms you, like really what's it going to do? If your eternity is secure, a, 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 a present kind of in your face right now, it's going to be uncomfortable, but in the grand scope, it's not going to do anything. There's no real eternal harm. That's the sense of verse 13. And verse 14 says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So clearly there's harm in the short term, right? Because he's, he's just talking about it. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even for doing what is good, but even there, you're going to be blessed. Even there, you'll be blessed. Now, why would Peter have the audacity to say, the end of verse 14 there, that if you suffer, you're going to be blessed? Like, that sounds a little bizarre, right? Well, the reason might be 
Because he's standing on really solid ground because Jesus said almost the exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And what does it say? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're persecuted now, that's not fun. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. But the kingdom of heaven is yours, right? So in that sense, you're blessed. The kingdom of heaven is the macro. So if you experience the micro of suffering, it might not be quite as big a deal because you're focused on that kingdom of heaven. You've already got the blessing, right? You've got the blessing, even in persecution. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Verse, 1 Peter three fourteen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Next question. So what is it about suffering for God that blesses us? What is it about suffering for God that blesses us? I've already hinted at it. Let's unpack it some more. Again, tying back to last week. Last week, we were talking all about those that might be persecuting us, our desire to maybe seek revenge. Peter's saying, don't do it. That's not the pathway of blessing. The pathway of blessing is this. Draw near to God. Do it God's way. Follow the Lord. Trust his word. And then what happens? He's near you. He's near you. He's near you. His face is is right in front of you. He hears your prayer. He's near you. And if that's the case... If God himself, the God of the universe, is near you, that's blessing. That's blessing. That's contentment. That's life. That's happiness. So don't remember, or I'm sorry, don't forget why you're suffering. Why are you suffering? You're suffering for God. You're willing to suffer for God. And so it's so obvious we miss it. If you have God, which we just got on saying, you've got the essence of blessing. God himself, right? So that's why Peter can say, along with Jesus, that suffering for God as a Christian brings blessing. It proves that you love God. It proves that you love God. It proves that you are his. If you're suffering for him, that means you're in relationship with him. If you're in relationship with him, that's the essence of blessing, right? It's kind of like this. If you're willing to suffer for someone, it's the strongest indicator that you really love that person. All right? Let me give you an example. Let me say it again. If you're willing to suffer for someone, it's the strongest indicator that you really love that person. So I was reading this week about two Danish brothers. And one Danish brother, his name is Steen, and his brother is named Peter, and their last name is Mondrup. Steen and Peter Mondrup. And they completed in 2014 an Ironman competition together, okay? And so what happened is this. They're twins, and one twin was born with cerebral palsy. The other twin is an elite Ironman athlete. And so Steen, the athlete, takes Peter with him on the Ironman competition. And a lot of you have seen how this works. So he straps on a, a, a flotation of device fit for an adult male, his brother who has cerebral palsy, probably 180 pounds or so, and puts him in the flotation device and he pulls him the two, point, or the two miles or whatever it is. That's a long way to swim. And then he puts him 
in this bike that's fit for him and his brother with cerebral palsy. And his brother sits out front, and he bikes from behind, and he pushes him 112 miles on the bike ride. And then he has another special wheelchair for his brother, and he pushes him, in addition, the 26.2 miles of the marathon. Now, when you see Steen treat his special needs brother, Peter, this way, what, what do you think? Do you think, man, he must hate his brother? No, of course not. What do you think? Man, that's a profound love that a brother has for a brother. Why? Because the Iron Man is horrible. I mean, who does this, right? This is like the height of masochism. I'm going to swim two miles, bike 112, and then run a marathon. Right, Colby? My man Colby, he's, a, he's an Iron Man. You give him a slap on the back after, after the service, right? Half my city group does Iron Man, so I love to talk about this. Um, but man, this is like hard, as hard as it gets, physically speaking, right? And then you add on that your brother who weighs 180 pounds, and you're going to take him with you through all of this. So you're already taking on Iron Man's suffering, and now you're just adding on more suffering, If you're willing to suffer for someone, it's the strongest indicator that you really love that person. Is it not clear that this brother loves his other brother? That Steen loves his brother Peter? Suffering for someone shows that you love that person. It becomes quite, quite clear. And in the same way, along the lines of our text, suffering for God shows that you love God. And if you love God and have him near you in Christ, like verse 12 says, because of the gospel, this is the essence of blessing. This is what Peter's getting at. Blessing is not sex, money, the great career, the great savings account, or whatever. Blessing is being with God and loving him and suffering for God shows this to be true. You do love God. You do love God, and thus you're blessed. Peter's just simply trying to encourage his audience in the midst of those who are against them. If you're suffering for God, this shows you love God, and loving God is the essence of blessing. Let's see what else he says. Verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness, righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then what? He says this, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Let's stop right there. So in light of what we just said, we have a firm foundation to do what it says here, all right? What does it say? Something not to do first. No fear. See it? No fear. Don't be, don't be fearful of them, okay? If God is for us, who can be against us? Great question. Answer that question in your mind right now. If God is for us, who can be against us? Remember who God is, and he's for you. So who can be against you? So fear is not an option, right? Being endlessly troubled, not an option. I'm going to trust the word of my Father in the Bible. So fear is not an option, no fear. That's what we're not going to do. So what are we to do? Look, what, what, look at what it says. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Jesus as holy. Now, what does that have to do with this? 
Because a lot of us think of holiness just simply in the sense of purity. I think that's how I was kind of taught early on. And it, it doesn't mean less than that, but it means a lot more than that. God is holy because he's perfectly pure, without sin. But holiness literally means this. It means to set something apart, meaning set it apart as special, as unique, as not treated like everything else, right? So, to, so, 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 so what does that mean here? To treat Jesus, Christ the Lord, as holy. It means Jesus is set apart. Jesus in your mind is unique, special, not like everything else. So in this context, what's the implication? See, we might be tempted to think that our persecutors, our sufferings, are truly the most unique and special thing. When you're suffering, right, what happens? We obsess. We think. It's constant on our minds. It occupies a special place in our minds because the persecution, the suffering, it's like right in our face. It's ever-present, right? It's very uncomfortable, so it's always on our mind. It's right there. And Peter says, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. Fight to not go there. And here's how. Remember that Christ is holy, meaning he's the most special. He's the most unique. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of the universe. Hebrews 1 says that he sustains this world by his word of power. He sustains the universe with a word. He stops speaking, everything implodes. Jesus is Lord of the universe. He is God. So Christ is Lord. Your persecutors are not Lord. Christ is Lord. Your persecutors are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So as you remember this, that Jesus, he rules and reigns, your persecutors do not rule and reign. As you do this, Christ is holy unto you, right? Christ is special unto you. Christ is going to occupy the majority of your brain such that when you meditate on him over and over again, not what your persecutors do, you can find peace. See, Peter's just saying, when Christ occupies that space as holy, as special, as the most unique, as, this, as, as the most treasured, as the most trusted, we'll be, we'll be safe, we'll be secure, eternally, macro, safe. So let me ask you, have you ever been, have you ever been persecuted for your faith? And that doesn't have to mean like martyrdom. A lot of times we think like, well, unless I've experienced martyrdom, you know, I haven't really been persecuted. And I'm not saying that. Persecution can come in all different shapes and sizes. For myself, the, the most recent incident came from, from my own family. And uh, when we planted the church, our salary was funded by outside sources. It's not the case today. Um, today we're supported by you all, and I'm thankful for that because we have enough numbers. But early on, when we didn't have the numbers, we raised money. And uh, members of my own family were on our support team. And after some kind of intense conversations about some of our core values, um, especially in reference to sexual ethics and how that intersects with our culture, um, it was made clear in, in somewhat of a passive-aggressive way that they would no longer be on my support team, and that was just withdrawn. 
And, and man, that, that hurt me, you know? I, I shed tears over that one. And, and it possessed my mind for weeks. It, now, is this the worst persecution that Christians have faced? No. But it was, it was hard for me. It cut me. And, I, and, and, and tragically, I did not have these verses all up in my face. I had my sense of persecution all up in my face. And I obsessed about it. And I tried to control the situation. I set it apart as really special. It was really holy unto me. And suffering can do this to us, can, can it not? We, we, I mean, any of you have lived probably more than five minutes, you know that suffering does this to us. And Satan wants us to give up and think that suffering rules and reigns. That persecution, it rules and reigns. But Peter is just simply commending the opposite. Jesus is Lord because of the cross and the empty tomb. And these two historical factual realities should be our all-consuming point of orientation. Jesus is truly holy. He's truly special, way more special than our temporal suffering. So we, so we fight for this orientation, and that's not to diminish, to diminish the pain that we go through. Like, we're not calling each other to slap on some plastic Christian smile, right? And just stuff things down and, and try to pretend that things don't hurt. In, in, in whatever way we're experiencing them. But here's what he does call us to. That in the midst of, of being tempted to be consumed with how you're suffering or, or persecution, battle it with a Philippians 4 type battle. Cast all your anxieties on him. You don't cast your anxiety on more anxiety. You don't cast anxiety on, on those that aren't going to remind you of the Lord and his holiness and how he's set apart as unique and special and Lord of the universe. Cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. In the midst of your angst, draw near to the Lord and his word and see the cross and see how God himself understands pain. He is not aloof to persecution. In the midst of your anguish, we go and we read Galatians 6, 2, and it says, bear one another's burdens. And so, man, i got to get around people to help remind me, man, what you're going through is hard. Can I pray with you? And let me remind you, the things that you're suffering, they're hard, but they pale in comparison to the greatness of King Jesus. Now, you say that with wisdom, and you don't say that as a pat answer, but we still got to say it. we got to say it to one another. I need you guys to say that to me. I'm not perfect. I messed up with this verse. I didn't do this verse perfectly when I've been persecuted in small ways. We need each other to bear these burdens and to walk with one another so that we can remind each other, set your mind on Christ as holy. May he be the one that's truly special, not the persecution. So here's what we got thus far. If you're suffering for God, this shows you love God. And loving God is the essence of blessing. And since God is for you, he is your all-consuming passion. He is holy unto you. So then what? Well, let's keep reading. End of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you 
for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So what Peter's saying here is that when the onlooking world, when the onlooking world sees you suffering or being persecuted, and you carry yourself as a person of hope, that's going to pique their curiosity. Probably because they don't share the same hope, right? So let me ask you, when was the last time someone asked you about the hope that you have? Or maybe said differently, when was the last time someone asked you about the unique way you live your life as a Christian? Have you responded to to suffering in a way that's unique, that might inspire questions about your hope, about what you value, about what you treasure, what you're trusting in? Let me give you some examples. Like, they're just common in our culture right now. Like, let's say you've got a boss who's just a complete jerk. Like, how can you respond differently than your other coworkers? That doesn't mean you're a doormat necessarily, but it does mean how I talk and how I respond should look more Jesus-like than maybe the world. The world's going to probably go just gossip. How can we go a different direction? How can we demonstrate that we have a hope, capital H hope, beyond a job situation? That Jesus is your treasure, not being perfectly treated by your boss. Let's say you you get cancer. My, My own father died two years ago of cancer. I hate cancer. And statistically speaking, cancer will take many of us in this room at some point. Maybe some of us have it right now. That's a horrible thing, and we rightly grieve when that happens. But how can we, we don't grieve as those who don't have any hope, right? How can we respond in a way that the world sees that we're people of hope? Because Christ reigns supreme, and he is our all, and he's holy unto us. And my, the biggest part of my brain is meditating on him. He is my point of orientation, not this physical world and all that it offers. Man, I want to grow old and see my grandkids. I look forward to that day, but Jesus is better than grandkids. Do you believe that? That's biblical hope. Here's another one. In in our lifetime, we may see uh, churches. It may not happen. It may happen. We don't know. It could happen. Churches stripped of their 501c3 tax status. As a nonprofit, not paying taxes. If that happens, how do we respond? Are we going to resist? And maybe we should resist. I'm not here to talk about that, yes or no. But I am saying this, based on this text, what's the way in which we respond? Is there a way to resist that shows you're really trusting in money and cultural advantage? Yeah, there's a way to do that. But there's also a way to resist as well that shows that Jesus is Lord. And he is our hope and our treasure and not money and cultural advantages. You with me? Let me give you one more, and this is going to climb right up into your face in this cultural time and space that we all live in right now, all right? So right now, so many of us 
Not all of us, a lot of us, at least in my circle of influence, in my neighborhood, friends here at church, my own family. Many people are having a really hard time because of our new president, right? Maybe in ways that I've never seen before in my lifetime. Now, if you're a non-Christian, it's very easy to have your ultimate hope, your ultimate, like, set apart as holy, as special, be politics, because if there's no God, I got to hope in some type of power structure, right? So politics might be the closest thing for some people. But that shouldn't be the case for those who set apart Christ as holy, right? As Christ is ultimately special and unique. See, here's the deal. No president is Jesus, right? Whether from George Washington to Donald Trump, no president is Jesus. So for Christians, there's always yet hope right? There's always yet hope. Now, that doesn't mean we don't resist, and there's a Christian way to resist, probably, a Christian way to not resist. There's a Christian way to support and a Christian way to not support, right? This doesn't mean we don't resist or support whatever from Obama to Bush to Clinton or Trump or any other politician, Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green Party, right? Whatever. So we do have something to say. Obama's stance on abortion for eight years, sickening and horrific. You do not take the unborn image of God, human beings, and dismember them and throw them in the trash. That grieves the heart of God. Donald Trump's stance on refugees right now, not the biblical worldview, all right? Now, this is not a sermon on politics. I'm just telling you, the heart of God is with the marginalized. You can read Old Testament. You can read New Testament. God's heart is for the marginalized. Explicit commands about foreigners and refugees, okay? So there's always gonna be times to resist, right? No matter who's in office, But here's the question. In the midst of those things that cause us to suffer or feel persecuted or whether it's financial collapse or cancer or meltdown politically or cancer, we need to show an onlooking world that we love Jesus more than all these things because we're people of hope, not of unending complaining or despair. We're people of hope. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And nothing can take that away from this first audience or for us. That's what Peter wants us to know. So no matter what, let that be your point of orientation as you endure whatever form of suffering, right? Our our response has to be unique when it comes to a jerk boss or cancer, financial calamity, or political chaos, I know so many of us are having this conversation right now. Like, it's, it's everywhere. Like, how crazy Donald Trump is, okay? And I'm not saying that. I'm, this is not a political sermon. And a lot of us can disagree in this room, and that's fine. We gotta, we're going to disagree in ways that, that, that exhibits Christian love and charity, okay? But I'm hearing it a lot, and maybe I agree, maybe I don't. But here's the question. If I do agree, how can I talk about that in a way that's unique, right? If you're going to go to the Women's March 
right? How can you do that in a way that demonstrates that Jesus is your hope? Okay? How can we talk about these things that sets Christ apart as holy, as our treasure? That's the question. And, and Peter's saying that when Christians truly do this, and you look very, very different, people will sit up and take notice. Not everyone, not all the time, but it will happen. And they're going to want to know, what makes you tick? Because you've got a hope that I don't have. Here's the point thus far. If you're suffering for God, this shows you love God, and loving God is the essence of blessing. And since God is for you, he's your all-consuming passion. He's holy unto you, such that temporal sufferings, though hard, can be endured with hope. And hope, true biblical Jesus-like, Jesus-is-Lord hope, makes people stand up and take notice. And then when they do, they're going to ask. Many are going to ask. And then, so what does Peter say when they ask? He says this. Let's look at it again. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. So when you see the word defense here, don't think like be defensive, right? Because this is tempered by the end of the verse. Gentleness and respect. It's more like making a defense, like make a reasoned argument. But again, argument is a negative word. Explanation. uh, A winsome explanation for the convictions you have. That's what he's saying. And you don't do that antagonistically. You do that with respect. Gentleness. Civility. That's not the norm on social media. That's not the norm on the 24-hour news cycle. Christians are going to be different because we're people of hope. Right? So here's what it says. In light of this, Peter says, I want you always to be prepared. Being prepared is a really big deal. Always be prepared. Not just some of the time, all the time. I want you to always to be prepared, right? What's the, the phrase? Those who prepare to fail. I said it wrong. Those who fail to prepare. See, I need to memorize this. Those who fail to prepare, what? Should prepare to fail. Did I say it wrong again? Those who fail to prepare. Did I say it right? Yeah. No. I can't even read. Those who fail to prepare should prepare to fail. Right? Those who fail to prepare should prepare to fail. All right. So last summer, um, I took my boys to Colorado, and we climbed a 12,000-foot peak, second highest peak in the lower forty-eight. And we were on a father-son trip with some other guys and their sons. And so what did we do? Did we just get out of bed one morning and decide, hey, let's go climb a mountain? No. That's a recipe for disaster. You have to prepare. When you're going to the second highest peak in the lower 48, you have to prepare. So what do we do? We check the weather. Weather's a big deal. Uh, We bought the rain gear. You don't want to be caught in a rainstorm. We set the alarm to get up early. We weren't just like, oh, let's just get up, whatever, and go. No, you got to get up there by noon because the weather changes after that. So you got to be down, heading down after noon. Uh, You got sunscreen. Sun is intense at that elevation. Pack enough water. You get dehydrated, you're going to be in sorry shape. You got to have enough food. You got to have sustenance to get up, right? You get up to 12,000 feet, you're not prepared. Rainstorm comes in, game over, 
right? We wanted to have a chance of success in doing this. We got boys ages, uh, ranging in ages of 6 to 15, eight of them, so we got to prepare. And we wanted to pull it off, and we did. It was awesome. No guarantee of success. Always things come about that are unforeseen, but we were going to do our best to be prepared. How much better for us if Jesus is truly Lord of the universe and he's so much better than climbing a mountain, how much more should we be prepared to talk about the hope that we have? To be able to articulate winsomely and beautifully, even if it's not received, that Jesus is Lord. No guarantee of success. Seeing people repent and believe, there's no guarantee of that. That's not up to us. That's up to God. But we still have to be prepared. That's what Peter's saying. So how? How do we prepare to do this? Oftentimes, I think, and I totally relate to this, I am no, like, rock star evangelist. I do evangelism out of faithfulness. I want to be faithful. Um, Maybe not as well as I should be. I don't do it out of gifting, Okay. Um, and sometimes I can feel paralyzed. Some of you know what this feels like. Like, uh, they said this some, something, and I, they asked me a question, and I just, I froze up. I didn't know what to say. I get that. We think we might have to have the exact words or, or that no one could ever defeat, and, and that's not realistic. I got to memorize a certain set of facts and anticipate all the perfect objections, or else I got nothing to say. I'm not even going to dive in. I get those feelings. Now, there's so much we could say about what it means to live in light of verse 15 and and making a defense to anyone who asks. But let me just break it down real simple because these opportunities always will come. And especially if you pray about them, if you ask God to give you opportunities, he will. He loves to answer that prayer. So I encourage you to start praying about it because this is part of who we are as a church on mission. But here's what we do. Here's what you, forget about being paralyzed and having all the right answers and all that stuff. Just get to know Jesus. Just get to know Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Be consumed with what God has done in space, time, and history in Jesus. Think about it like this. If someone asked me to give a a defense or a reasoned explanation for why I love my wife so much, why I'd be willing to like alter the course of my whole life to, to be with her, to share money with her, have kids with her, suffer with her, what would I say? Well, I probably wouldn't feel paralyzed and freeze up, right? Why? Because I know her. Through friendship, dating, engagement, and now almost 19 years of marriage, we've spent over 20 years together. Day in, day out, ups, downs, sunshine, rain, all of it. We walked through it all together. There's no lack of things that I could say about the greatness of my wife, why I love her so much. And the same should just be true in our relationship with God. When someone comes to you and says, Man, you're, you're a little different as a Christian. I, I can sense that. You don't talk the same way about politics. You don't respond to cancer the same way. You don't respond to the jerk boss the same way. What's going on with you? Well, for those that have spent time with Jesus, we got something to say. For those that know Jesus, just like I know my wife, we got something to say. See, Jesus just simply said, you want to know me? I'm sorry, you want to know the Father? Look to me. The Father and I are one. So you want to know God? Know Jesus. Day in, day out, spend time with Jesus. Ups and downs, highs and lows, having clung to Jesus, having walked with Jesus. And you know what the best way to do that is? 
It's no big secret. We talk about it all the time. It's right here in the Word. We get to know Jesus through God's Word. The whole Bible's all about Jesus, right? From beginning to end. He said so. But you want to crash course? Hang out in the Gospels. Hang out in the Gospels. First four books of the New Testament. And you're going to see that Jesus is the most unique person that ever walked the earth in what he said and what he did. Centered specifically on his life, death, and resurrection. And so it's never going to be less than that, but there may be other unique ways. Like a lot of the parables are just great summaries of the gospel. I love the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so and sometimes when I've had these conversations in recent days with people about, hey, you're a pastor? Yeah. Well, what, what, what kind of church? Well, it's Christian church. Well, what's that all about? Well, let me tell you. Uh, it's kind of like this. Jesus told the story about the parable of the tax collector. I won't recite the whole thing right now, but I'm just going to show him Jesus because I know Jesus. I know, that, I know what he said. I love what he said. Man, it's a perfect illustration of the gospel. It's because we've soaked in that word. We've gotten to know this, 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 this Savior, Jesus. We know him. We got something to say. I know my wife. I got something to say. We know Jesus. We got something to say. So that's how we get prepared. Just soak in God's word. Let's be people of the book. Let's be people that know Jesus through the means that he's given us to know him. And that's going to connect us to verse 15. That's going to connect us to always being prepared. I always got something to say about Jesus because I know him. I know him so well. I walk with him every day through his word. So that's why we, we really encourage you to spend time in the Bible. And that's also why we have city groups that center around the word. So we do this together, right? We do this together. So you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have all the answers. To be a faithful witness, you just have to know what's true in history about Jesus and how that's intersected with your life. Tell them about Jesus. So here's what we've said today, and then we'll be done. If you're suffering for God, this shows that you love God. And loving God is the essence of blessing. And since God is for you, he's not against you, he is your all-consuming passion. He is holy unto you, set apart as unique and holy, such that temporal sufferings, though hard, can be endured with supernatural hope. Hope that makes people stand up and take notice. And when they take notice, you're going to have something to say about Jesus that will draw attention to the beauty, joy, and life in a relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. We ask for your help this morning by the power of your spirit through your word to conform us to the image of your son. Uh, may this text come alive in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. And that, as we think on that, as we think of maybe and reflect on the ways that um, maybe we've responded to persecution um, by not turning to Christ, or, or maybe that we've, we've run uh, from, from righteousness because we're afraid of that persecution, maybe in those moments we're, we're reminded of our need to repent. And so this morning we have a, a chance to do so through the Lord's Supper, which is a tangible reminder of, of what God's done for us. So read from Matthew 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. 